Oh, hello there. I'm Melinda Catherine Gross. And I'm Michael Nixon. And we like to talk about murder. Well, you like to talk about murder, fictional murder, a <laughs> lot, uh, whether anybody wants you to or not. That's right. And Michael doesn't talk about murder nearly enough. So I would like to invite you all to join us as we explore the material of our favorite monster. Hannibal Lecter. Yes. Each week we will be discussing and dissecting the film and TV appearances of Thomas Harris's infamous serial killer, Dr. Hannibal Lecter. Mostly, I'm going to try to get Michael to eat people. I won't. You will. I might, but there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Having a Friend for Dinner, available on DuelingGenre.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Until then, bon appetit. Ooh. Dueling Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story. I'm Todd Mack. And I'm Joe Dorowski. And this week we are discussing Susie Hendricks from the film Wait Until Dark. This is a good October discussion, I think. Oh, yeah. Top topic for the discussion. Wait Until Dark. This one was not a patron request, but it is, in fact, your last regularly scheduled uh, story that we're going to talk about. This is episode number 199, assuming things get released in the proper order. <laughs> and uh, next week will be your farewell. So Todd, for your final film for our discussion, what do you think of Wait Until Dark uh, being it? Um, uh, I, 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 I wasn't I wasn't thinking like, okay, this is the one that I'm going to go out on. Like, this is my favorite film of all time. Uh, but this is a really good uh, film. It's a very scary film. Um, it's one that I've seen not dozens of times, but several times. And uh, it's just, it's good. It holds up. <laughs> and I think this is one that was on the schedule well before you had said you were going to have to be bowing out of the protagonist podcast with episode number 200. Just, I think like last year we just threw it up there on October for 2018. Like, Oh, yeah. that's a good October film to talk about. Yeah. Um, and it remains a good October film to talk about. Oh yeah. Uh, so wait until dark. If listen, listeners, if you're unaware, it is a 1967 film directed by Terrence young with a screenplay by Robert Carrington and Jane Howard Carrington. Star, it stars Audrey Hepburn as Susie Hendricks, a woman who recently went blind. And then she becomes the subject of a plot by three criminals who want to break into her house and steal something. There's a MacGuffin in the plot. Uh, and if you are unfamiliar with this, you have a treat ahead of you. It is definitely worth the watch. So uh, you said you've watched this several times. I remember the first time I watched it. I think you may have been there. Did we watch this in high school, like seniorish with a group uh, of friends? It's highly likely. This is one. This I, is one that if anybody's like, oh, uh, we should watch a scary movie. This is like my go to scary movie. Yeah, I, th I think I was introduced to, the, to this in high school, and I think you were there the first time I saw it, and I've seen it a few times since, and then today in preparation for this uh, podcast. And I've got to say, even though I've seen it a few times, there are a few jump scare moments oh, that yeah. still get me. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, some trivia about Wait Until Dark. It is based on a 1966 play by Frederick Knott, and that is a really fast turnaround from... Uh, for an adaptation. So 1966 play becomes the 1967 film. 
Audrey Hepburn was nominated for an Academy Award and a Golden Globe for her role in this film. Uh, Wait Until Dark has a 95% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, because somehow in our 200 episodes, this is our first film featuring Audrey Hepburn. I cannot believe uh-huh. that. Yeah, I, it surprised me when I was thinking about it. Uh, I just wanted to do a little bit of trivia about her because her life is really interesting, actually. Um, she was born in Belgium in 1929. Her dad was British and her mom was Dutch. And her family bounced around Europe uh, in the 19. 19- 30s so just think about that (laughs) for a moment uh but because of this audrey hepburn spoke english dutch french spanish and italian and in 1935 her father got involved in a pro-fascist group called the british union of fascists and he left his family it's not uh hiding their hand at all (laughs) (laughs) no i i like when i came across that i'm like was that really their name yes yes it was The British Union of Fascists. Sometimes you can get away, you know, you'll see people get away with it. Like, well, he was in this kind of right-leaning pro... (laughs) When you're called the British Union of Fascists, uh, you're not hiding your colors. No. Um, When World War II broke out, Audrey and her mom moved to the Netherlands, hoping it would remain neutral like it had in World War I. But uh, Germany invaded and things didn't go well for uh, Audrey Hepburn's family. During the occupation, she went by the name Edda van Heemstra so that she didn't sound British. Um, Wouldn't have been good to be too British uh, living then. Uh, And it's it's said uh, out of a couple different sources I looked at, her uncle was executed because he was accused of an act of sabotage against Germany. And her half-brother, and I could not find the origin of her half-brother, but it says her half-brother was sent to a German labor camp and in 1944, there was a famine in um, in uh, the Netherlands where they were, and there were very few supplies coming in, obviously. And she developed anemia, respiratory problems, edema, and other issues associated with malnutrition. And some of her like long-term health wow. uh, was damaged by the malnutrition. It said um, like they had to be grinding uh, tulip bulbs to make flour to try and make any food uh, to eat. Oh, my gosh. Um, I had no idea. After. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's, it's getting real and harsh. Uh, war is awful. We should try to avoid it. After the war, Hepburn's family, uh, so her father had left uh, just you know before the war, um, but her mom's family had been quite wealthy, but all of that was gone uh, by the end of the war, and they really had to scrape to make ends meet. And Hepburn had had training as a ballerina, and so she went and worked as a ballerina and a chorus girl, and eventually, um, at, because of her role as a chorus girl, she was cast in some BBC teleplays. And that eventually led to her actually being cast in a Broadway play. And that Broadway play went on tour, which got her to California, where she ended up being cast in Roman Holiday, which launched her film career. Um, And in her uh, long career, uh, Hepburn won an Academy Award, an Emmy, two Golden Globes, a Grammy, and a Tony. And she is one of only 15 people to have won what is called the EGOT, or I've also (laughs) heard it just pronounced Ego with a, a, a silent T, which is an Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony Award. Wow. And besides being famous for her acting, Hepburn was heavily involved in humanitarian efforts, particularly for UNICEF. She was very concerned about child hunger, unsurprising once you find out um, her her life story. And she toured Ethiopia, Turkey, Venezuela, Ecuador, Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, Bangladesh, Vietnam, and Somalia for the UN um, and did a lot of work uh, to try and... uh, resolve issues of child hunger in those areas and she received the presidential medal of freedom for her humanitarian work and at the unicef headquarters there's a statue of audrey hepburn 
uh, because of her active role in their in their charities. And then she died uh, from cancer in 1993. Wow. That is amazing. Yeah, she uh, like she is one of our iconic Hollywood actresses. But then you read up on her life and you're like, oh, there's so much more. Yeah. So, so much more than just breakfast at Tiffany's. <laughs> um, Joseph. Yes. I, I, I did a little bit of background research because I was interested in the director for this because I thought okay. this was a really well-directed film. For any new listeners, this is producer Andrew. Jump again. Yeah. Uh, and so the director, Terrence Young, in World War II, he was a tank commander. During Operation Market Garden, which went into the Netherlands and actually uh, to the city where Audrey Hepburn was growing up. Really? What an unexpected connection. <laughs> yeah. And apparently they they like pieced that together when they were working on this film. Wow. At some point they're like, oh, yeah, I know that place. <laughs> I've been there. I've been to your hometown as a, you know, uh, rescuing force. <laughs> Wow, this is I, so, I love Audrey Hepburn. You want to go to more? <laughs> I, know, I just I love Audrey Hepburn more Wait. than I than I did before this podcast started, which is uh, saying something because I really uh, I really like her. Big fan. Oh, yeah, yeah, she's very good. Yeah, and uh, I mean, not everyone gets a Presidential Medal of Freedom, so she was really involved in in charity work. In, in addition to the the EGOT. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I don't know if any of those other 15 who have the EGOT also have a Presidential Medal of Freedom. She might be the only and, one. And a statue. <laughs> yes, yeah. at, a, at a UN charity headquarters. Um, I, one thing that I that I noticed that was interesting, so you said uh, her, you referenced what you called her long career. It doesn't seem like it was really that long. Well, it, so it, Roman it, it Holiday, like definitely her, had ebbs and flows. Well, her first big hit was Roman Holiday. That was 1953. And I mean, she has some great films in here. So Roman Holiday, Sabrina, um, and then Breakfast at Tiffany's, Charade, My Fair Lady, How to Steal a Million, and Wait Until Dark. And then after that, it's so Wait Until Dark is 1967. So that was 14 years. Then there's some ebbs right after that. And then after that, you have Robin and Marion from 1976, a film I haven't seen. Bloodline, 1979, I haven't seen. They All Laughed, 1981, uh, Love Among Thieves, 1987, and Always, 1989. That's it. Yeah, and she does, um, like, she's involved in a few projects that uh, some of them even come out posthumously, like, in, in or posthumously, as some people say. Uh, <laughs> the uh, Into the 90s. But, the yeah, so it does go it, right? into the say 90s, it. but it's definitely, uh, yes, I've, I've heard it both ways. Uh <laughs> <laughs> uh i mean it stretches into the 90s is what i meant by that but it is not as active a career um from the the 70s and, and particularly in the 80s is when she's heavily involved in a lot of the humanitarian work she was doing i mean maybe robin and marion or or bloodline are like amazing audrey hepburn films that i just haven't seen but really it seems to me like the the bulk of her career is roman holiday to wait until dark yeah, and that is uh, let's see when is Roman Roman Holiday fifty nineteen fifty three to nineteen sixty seven. So fourteen year is definitely yeah that is like the height of her career, and then it's just an occasional project every 
every little while after that. Yeah, I mean, if you think about like the other great Hepburn, right? Um, she was you know nineteen thirties till the really till the nineties, and I just as I was like, I was talking to my wife about Audrey Hepburn the other the other last night when we watched this. And I was thinking, uh, Audrey Hepburn in every film, she always seems. I mean, she doesn't seem like uh, I can't. I can't envision her aging really in her films. I mean, I, 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 obviously she's older in Wait Until Dark than she is in Roman Holiday, but um, I don't ever. I don't think I've ever seen a, her acting, you know, as an older woman. But I don't know. It just seems like it, it's a I mean, it's so, a fairly short career. I mean, she's she's no Betty White. Yeah, I, I <laughs> no. Um, so her career is really the bulk is in those fourteen years, and I think she's about forty at the um, the tail end of that. I mean, she died in her sixties, I think, in the, if I'm remembering right. Let me. Well, she was born in nineteen twenty nine. Yeah, Roman yeah, Holidays, nineteen fifty three. So she's Carrie the Four. <laughs> she's. 29, Never do math on, on air. <laughs> 49. She's 23, 24 years old until, you know, in her late 30s. Yeah. And, and that's really she, the kind she of dies the of her in career. her early 60s. Yeah. Yeah. So interesting. It just, uh, it doesn't seem like uh, for as amazing an actress as she is and as well loved as she is, um, it's not like you can name 20 Audrey Hepburn films. You can name, I mean, most people would be able to name probably five or seven at the most yeah i I think you're right there okay well um we should get into this before we get into your long synopsis uh listeners we would like to thank each and every one of you for listening and especially those who support us on patreon if you would like to support us financially we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least one dollar per month all supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers and give monthly updates on our fantasy box office. And all patrons who support us with $5 per month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. And now it's time for the synopsis of this awesome film. Okay, uh, we open with an old man sewing bags of heroin into a doll for a woman named Lisa. She takes the doll with her to the airport where it is undetected by security. Lisa flies to New York <laughs> security. City. Security. But upon landing... <laughs> so, yeah, let's just say this is definitely pre-9-11 security. Oh, yeah. uh, it's 1960s security. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love uh, any any stories that you get like old style air travel. It's like, mm, different times. Yeah, really. <laughs> There's a, a Tom Stopper play, I think it is, that I read in college. And like, there's a moment where it's on an airplane and one of the characters sits down next to someone and s- starts to light a cigarette. And the person goes, this is the non-smoking row. You need to move up one if you're going to smoke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys did um, the, the, the corpse flu first class oh, yeah. or something. What was the name of that murder she wrote? Yes. Uh, yeah, lots lots of interesting air travel on that one. Okay, uh, but anyway, Lisa is flying to New York City, and she lands, but she sees someone, like, watching her. And she uh, gets, like, visibly nervous, and she gives the doll to a fellow passenger. And we don't really hear the conversation. She just gets this man, uh, who, who we'll find out his name is Sam, to, to take the doll. 
And then later on, we see some criminals named Mike and Carlino who show up at an apartment in New York City, and they're looking for Lisa. And we get the sense that she was their partner in crime, but they got caught, uh, and and now they're out, and they want to reconnect with Lisa. And then we see the man who had been eyeing Lisa at the airport, the one who made her nervous. He shows up, and he tells Mike and Carlino, this is not Lisa's place. He says his name is Harry Rote. And he would like their help in finding a doll that Lisa hid from him. They refuse. But then they discover Lisa's body is in this apartment. She's dead. Uh, and, and it's actually like in a, uh, a garment bag in the closet, like hanging from the closet door. They find her body. Uh, and then Rope points out that their fingerprints are everywhere and his are nowhere. And just then, like as he's starting to blackmail them, Susie shows up. And we see that Susie is blind and the men hide until she leaves to go meet her husband. Um, So, uh, and then Rote makes the men, uh, Carlino and Mike, help him dispose of Lisa's body. And and they agree to help him find the the doll because uh, he's kind of got them in a rough situation. So the next day, Sam, who's the man that was at the airport, he tells Susie that if the woman calls about the doll, they just can't find it. They don't know where it went. Um, Susie mentions uh, that there was a woman whose body was found nearby. So there was a, a murder nearby and Sam just tells her not to worry about it. Then uh, Susie drops something and Sam tells her to feel around and find it herself. Uh, he wants her to be independent. And then he has to leave on a business trip. And the neighbor girl who is named Gloria stops by to go help buy groceries. Uh, then Rote and the two con men start a rather elaborate plot to find the doll. <laughs> um, this is, <clears throat> I, so good. Until I was trying to write down the summary of this plot, I it never really hit me how absurdly complex their plot is. <laughs> but anyway, Mike shows up. And Mike is kind of like, of these criminals, he seems like the nicest, most personable one. Uh, and he shows up and he pretends to be an old army buddy of Sam's. And he just kind of comes in and says, "Bye, hey, I was hoping to run into Sam here. Oh, he's not here. Uh, well, real quick, real quick. Sam is yes. Susie's husband. Yes. Okay. And I'm trying to remember, do we know where the doll actually is? No. At this point, no. Okay. So, the, so Sam had the doll at some point. Yeah. And, and, and they know. keep saying there's mention kind of told- that uh, I mean, he, he's mentioned the doll to her and she, he says he doesn't know where it is. And they kind of look for it together, but and he says she, like if if the woman calls for it, you know we, meaning, we don't know meaning yeah. the dead woman. Yes, then we don't know where it is. But does he know? He, so he doesn't know that it has drugs. No, he has no idea. No, absolutely not. So he just he just lost it after she gave yeah, it to him. So at the it, which seems mm-hmm. so unlikely. It's this. Okay. I can't remember if it was. So I was looking up lots and this was based on a play and I can't remember if this is said in the film or it was information I found from the play. Is it explained in the in the movie, Todd, how what she said to him in the airport? No, when they're on the airplane, actually, it's intentionally. Okay. Um, yeah. Ambiguous. It, so I think this must be from the play. But in in something else I looked up, it says that she says to him, I'm getting home and I have this doll for one of my daughters mm-hmm. who's sick in the hospital, but my other daughter is going to be here at the airport. I don't want her to see it. Cause she's going to get jealous. Can you just hold this? And I will come pick it up when I'm on the way to hospital to yeah, pick up my daughter. That is mentioned, that but daughter. it comes in <laughs> later. It oh. comes in later when they're actually at the airport. Right. Uh, the, the plane engines are too loud and, and their conversation is completely right. uh, silenced. Yeah. You have no idea what she, yeah, what but eventually that does come oh, out with the daughter, the thing with the daughters. 
Okay. Okay, and real quick, who killed her? Rote. Is that is uh, it like the implication is, is that Rote killed her and yes. put her in yes. Susie's house? Mm-hmm. So he yeah. killed her somewhere else, moved her into Susie's house carefully with gloves and everything, so that the other guys could no, be black. He lured her into uh, well, the house I, I think and killed her. The implication her. is that he met there. Okay. So yeah, somehow they were looking how did for he the know? doll. Okay, so he and the woman were looking for the doll, and then he killed her. They couldn't find it. No, the no. doll probably wasn't there. Okay, Sam this can't is what find happened. It. I'm trying to happened. piece this together, and this is all like not even part of the story. I'm just trying to piece it together. Like, okay, this, the so staging. this is this is what happens. They, uh, she, she's on the airplane with Sam. She gets off the airplane. Uh, she looks up onto this balcony, and she sees uh, Rote there with the sunglasses. He's got these round sunglasses. And then she's obviously yeah. nervous, and um, in a she she gets to a place where Rote can't see her, and she runs up to Sam, and she gives him the doll, and he tucks it in his bag, and then she walks up and Im- is immediately met by Rote, who grabs her arm, kind of in a you know like a strong man, uh, he grabs her mm-hmm. arm and takes her away. So then he takes her. Eventually, he takes her to Sam's house. I mean, she tells him. Uh, I left it with this guy, Sam. We'll go get it together because she knows she's in trouble. Mm-hmm. He takes her there. He kills her. Uh, he sets up He sets up uh, the other guys, Carlino and what's the other guy's name? Mike, uh, Mike and Carlino. Mike. Uh, and he sets them up to make it look like Lisa has invited them to the house to look for the doll. Uh, but it's really him. And when Mike says, uh, you know, let's, well, let's look around and see. Um, and he says there's a closet, and so Mike goes and opens the closet, and then Lisa is in this plastic bag hanging on the inside of the door of the closet. That's like one of the scariest things of the whole movie for me. Yeah, it's it terrifying. it is a creepy like early. That's oh yeah, within it's the first really disturbing. Yes, well, and we're already past this point. One of the scariest moments is actually um, Susie goes in and grabs a scarf, and the way she puts on the scarf when she flicks it over her shoulder, it hits. Um, Lisa's yes. hair, like the dead body's hair, and like makes the hair oh. move. And the staging on it that is, was yeah. so perfect. So yeah. is that is that clear how that's set up now? Okay, I think I think I've got it. And so much of that is just implicit, and you don't even think about it yeah. in the movie because the movie moves so fast, and it's really contained to only like most of the movie is going to be this next evening after yeah. all of that happened. Yeah. So like all, all that stuff we just had to break down is like opening credits, <laughs> practically. Yeah, almost. Yeah. I, but but implicit for us, like now we're just like okay, there's this weird situation. What's going to happen next? Yeah, and and none of it matters really, except that we're in this situation now. Okay, got it. So yeah. so Mike shows up, and he's pretending to be Sam's friend. Yes. Okay. And so he pretends to be Sam's friend, and he makes first contact with Susie, and kind of builds this friendship, and he seems charming, and then he leaves, and then wrote uh, the 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 baddest of the bad guys. He comes in and he's dressed like an old man. And he pushes his way into the apartment, yelling about Sam being with some other woman. And he rummages around in the bedroom. And he's like throwing stuff down. And then he storms out of the place. And then like takes a uh, Susie's like really upset about this. Yes, Not with a, a camera, but Susie's he actually like this. takes a picture from her from her dresser, from the top of her dresser. 
Um, and so she's obviously upset because some stranger just burst in and she can't see exactly what he did. And Mike comes back just now and he, he's like, hey, I, I think I left something here. Oh, you're all upset. Can I comfort you? Let me call the cops for you. And he goes to the phone and he calls. He says he's calling the cops, but he's actually calling a payphone that's just outside where Carlino is waiting by the payphone. And so he makes this report on the phone. And then a little while later, uh, Carlino comes in and Carlino is pretending to be a policeman and he's wiping down the place <laughs> for all the fingerprints. <laughs> and they're worried they've left, which it's a funny moment. But at the same time, they also are touching everything everywhere in this apartment. So I'm not quite sure what his goal is <laughs> in wiping down these uh, the surfaces. Um, and he, he interviews Susie and she doesn't really have a whole lot of information. Uh, and, and then Rote comes back, but now he's dressed as a young man. And he's saying, did my dad come by and like accuse you of anything? I'm really sorry about that. And he spins a tale that is really, he's trying to sound apologetic, but he's trying to plant the seed of doubt in Susie's mind that Sam had an affair with this woman. And it's the woman who was killed last night. And what is my husband, uh, you know, up to? And, um, and then they also like keep mentioning like the the in in the story about Sam's potential affair that may or may not have happened that there was a doll. It, does Susie know where a doll is? Because that could prove he was innocent or not. And she's like, I really don't know where the doll is. And then all the men leave. And then Gloria comes back. So this is Gloria's the little girl uh, that um, we kind of got a sad story. Like her dad apparently has left the family and her mom is just off part party partying for the weekend. And so Gloria's alone um, and she sneaks in and she's trying to set the doll down. And um, then it, it starts playing music. So it's a, it's a doll that could play music in the back and the music starts. And then Susie knows that Gloria is there and she's like, you had the doll. Um, and so now the doll has been found. So Andrew, your earlier question about like, where in the world is this doll? It was okay. with Gloria. Got uh, Susie got Mike's phone number, which is really just the payphone <laughs> out, out on the corner. And she calls that number and says, I've got the doll. And he says, I'm going to come get it. And then uh, Susie asks Gloria, like, go, go look at the, like, Mike told me that there's a police van out there watching this place. And Gloria goes in and she's like, there's no police van out there. Like there's a van, but it's, it, it's not a police vehicle. And now Susie starts to get suspicious. And she's like, wait, everything that's happened is really weird. <laughs> Should I trust anyone that has told me anything? And she decides I probably shouldn't, shouldn't. So uh, she thinks she made a mistake in calling Mike. So she hides the doll. And then Mike comes in and he starts talking and wrote and Carlino are right behind him on the stairs. And she's saying, where's the doll? But wrote and Carlino are on the stairs, but, Sam's uh, but, but uh, Susie can't see them. She doesn't know that they're there. Yes. Yeah. So creepy. Yeah, they're just looming in the background. <laughs> um and she says well the the doll is i i remembered it's at sam's photography studio uh which is a ways away she tells him where the keys the keys are and mike says fine i'm gonna go look but it better be there and then rote reaches over and he cuts the phone cord uh, and he and mike go to the studio uh and then um carlino is standing out front i i think Susie gets uh um Gloria to come talk to her and Gloria says, no, there's a man standing out front. He's like, he's guarding the place. So Susie says, Gloria, you go to the bus station. Sam should be coming home soon. And you tell him what's going on. And uh, she goes out the back window. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. So she crawls no, out, she the crawl window, out the back, back window. window. Gloria. She just goes out the front door and yeah. she's, she just goes out the front door. Cause Carlino, Carlino, Carlino doesn't, doesn't know. Right, her I was trying yet. to remember that part. Yeah. And he okay. doesn't see her coming out of like the apartment. He sees her coming out. Right. Of the and there is no the back door. The building. So that, really that's established uh, early right. on that, that there's no back door. There's no way for, for her to get out. We, we got to get these stakes in place. 
Yes. I sorry, I was trying to remember all the all the geography of this. Alright, so now Susie realizes the phone cord has been cut. And she's she realizes she's trapped in this basement apartment. Phone is cut. There's a guy out front. She's lied to them about this doll that they seem very intent on getting, and she assumes now they're murderers. They she she's assuming some connection to the dead body that was found earlier. What am I gonna do? So she says uh, you know, what is the best thing I can do? She goes and she starts breaking every light bulb in her apartment, which this scene is it so really great. Is. Wait, yeah, just pulling out all of them. It's a kind yeah, of pulling a, them out, breaking them, hitting them with her cane. It's kind of a home alone kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. But oh man, it's just so good. Like preparing yeah, the space so she has, so the, she advantage. has the advantage. Yep. Which basically, and she puts do, do we know uh, some how, sort of like clean she's been chemical. So even like she might not really know the space that well. Yeah. So, but she's giving herself a bit of an advantage. So a little of the backstory that we find out is that she lost her sight about a year ago and she is newly wed to Sam. So her doubts about Sam, part of that is that being newly married, a new relationship. He met her after she was blinded um, in a, it says in a car accident, she uh, in a car accident or fire after the car accident. Yeah, yeah, so she's she terrified of fire. She's been traumatized by this thing. Um and the and it's so cruel. Oh man, the these these three guys, this the like the psychological cruelty of the way, of what they're doing to her in kind of seeding s- 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 the doubt. It's really um they're pretty twisted. Yeah. Wrote especially. Yeah. Oh yeah. He's the worst of these by far. Um, and, and he is he's like he's scary oh yeah mm-hmm. like he he creeps out other criminals oh yeah yeah like the, the line delivery is it alan arkin who plays it him? is alan arkin and he is good <laughs> yes <laughs> um so she breaks all the bulbs except for one so she leaves one light on and she also dumps out water from one of her uh, potted plant and she pours in some like cleaning chemicals into it so that's her preparation that we see happen now mike comes back and mike's alone at this point and he says you know what? The doll wasn't there. And I think you've been lying to me, but I kind of respect your resiliency. Like there's this kind of like, I, I respect your efforts, but he says, we're criminals. Rote is really the bad guy, but don't worry. Carlino's killing Rote right now. We know he's the worst of us. And then we cut to a shot outside of a car running down someone in the street and then running over the body several times. And this is a very surprising scene when it happens yeah. the first time you see the film. Like, and it's like still smash like, cut. Yeah. And it's so violent, like it's still really jarring. I no matter how many times you see the it's, film. I mean, it's it's violent, but it's this it's this bloodless violence, right? Like you see a yeah, hat, it's a silhouette, but yeah, it's, it's enough a silhouette to get it's a mound of the ground to get a reaction. Yeah, mm-hmm. the car just backing up and driving over this mound. It, you just ugh, it's gross. Um, and Mike says everything's fine now. If you'll just give me the doll, we're gonna take off. But just then, Rote appears behind him and stabs him in the back and pushes Mike's dead body down the stairs. And Rote is now tired of these games. And I just want to point out, these were really elaborate games. (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of his own fault. Like, he he has no one to blame but himself, really, for all of this. Yes. Like, I am, uh, I've probably said it on on this podcast. I certainly will when we talk about Harry Potter and uh, the... The Goblet of Fire. Oh, that yeah. is one of the craziest <laughs> villain plots ever. This is up there, though. This is pretty, pretty needlessly uh, complex. So, wrote he's tired of this, and he chains the door shut, and then he splashes gasoline over the apartment and threatens to burn the place down if she doesn't give him the doll. 
And as we've established, she is terrified of fire. So she says she'll give him the doll. And, but she asks, are you looking at me? And he says, yes. And she hears where his voice is. And she throws the chemicals that were in that planter at his face. And then she smashes the last light in the apartment and the screen goes completely black. But then he lights a match and he mocks her. Um, but then she runs, she finds the gasoline can and she throws gasoline at him. And so he puts out the match and you, and you hear gasolines are splashing all over him and he's spluttering. And so now he can't play with fire um, at this point. So Susie thinks she's going to escape. Uh, but then, and the doll is in the apartment, right? Oh yeah. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he like, it's there. Yeah. yeah, it's there, but he doesn't know she where thinks... he doesn't know where it is. And it's now pitch black. Like the screen is just black. Yep. And yeah. She thinks she's going to escape and she's trying to find her way out and it's just black. And then you hear the refrigerator door open and the glow of light from inside the refrigerator. Oh, so good. Uh, oh. Lights up the room. And it is such it is such a great moment of the film. Like the filmmaking is so great because to go from the pitch black and then to the, the sound work of the, the crack of the refrigerator door and the different, the change of the refrigerator hum um, as mm-hmm. the doors open and the way the lighting is in the scene, it is just really fantastic work. And she is just devastated because she knows immediately what has just happened. Like she forgot that there's a light bulb in the fridge. Cause of course you would forget there's a light bulb in the fridge. So the tension um, is just, like it skyrockets right there. Yeah, and yes. the freezer has been a part of the story kind of throughout. Like it doesn't come out of nothing. The, we're told, you know, early on, there's a freezer in here, and yeah, like Chekhov style. Yeah, it's Chekhov's been freezer. set up. Yeah, it's there, totally Chekhov's a, freezer. Like there is a light in this icebox, and yeah, like you just I, don't I think skipped, about. It. I mean, I kind of skipped it because it, it it's not huge for the plot, but it is important for setting it up. Like when Gloria first comes, she actually yeah like uh Susie and glory yell at each other mm-hmm. um and and part of it is like Susie saying i need your help to defrost the f- the freezer and she's like you just i just turn the dial and it turns down the freezer and it'll defrost it's fine and she's like no we need to take everything out and she's like you do it yourself um and so like the freezer has like been the center point of some conflict already <laughs> in in the show and as you're saying andrew like it is like Chekhov's gun this is going to be really significant it's not really a fight about a freezer it's a fight about these two people who like Gloria, who has a really bad home situation, Susie, who is blind and stressed about everything naturally. They're fighting about that, but it's also setting up the freezer yeah. um, as something that's going to be really key to this plot. So now uh, the freezer door or the fridge door is open uh, and um, Susie cries and he demands the doll and she's, she gives in and she says, well, if you won't hurt me, I'll give you the doll. And she gives it to him and he cuts it open and he removes the drugs. And then he says, go to the bedroom. So there's, you know, yeah, a rape threat has just <laughs> been laid out on the floor. And uh, so that she, she starts walking back to the bedroom, but then uh, she stabs him in the gut with a kitchen knife. So when he was cutting open the doll, she had grabbed a knife and he hadn't noticed and he collapses to the ground and she cries and she stumbles, she stumbles out to go, uh, you know, she's trying to get to the door or to the window to call for help. And then out of nowhere, Rote leaps up it's so and his good. silhouette just flies across the screen. Like, like the, the biggest so shadow. Harsh. Oh man. Yes. Uh, I mean, when I think back on this film, I almost think of it as black and white. Like when I haven't watched it yeah. recently, it is a color film, but this sequence, it feels black and white because of the harsh light of the refrigerator, I think. And the shadow that just moves across the screen and grabs her ankles. And it is staged so well and performed so well by both of them. Because you, you think he's dead. You think he's, he's down and she's going to be okay. And then it's just the biggest <laughs> shadow you have ever yeah. seen. Oh yeah. And it's like, I mean, cause the, the- he's just completely airborne 
like across the screen and then lands and grabs her foot. My wife jumped so high. <laughs> I mean, it feels like like the way you, when I vision it, envision it in my head, it feels like a creature, like a vampire is leaping across oh, the yeah. room. Like there's something that feels supernatural about the way he mm-hmm. flies across the room. And it's like a living shadow that just, um, you know, goes across this harsh light from the refrigerator. And he grabs her. Oh. And I think another thing that makes it work so well is like the stakes have already been raised like five times <laughs> for the danger. Yeah. And, and she survives it. And so you think, okay, I can breathe now. <laughs> and then they're going to do it one more time uh, beyond that. Uh, and so he leaps out and he grabs her leg and she kicks free and she runs to the refrigerator to try and close the door so he won't be able to see her. But wrote when he opened it, he stuck a rag like far in at the hinge so that it couldn't be closed. And she can't see that. And so it's not closing all the way. She can tell it's not closing all the way and she can't figure out why. And he is dragging himself across the floor like he's stabbing the knife into the oh, floor man, and pulling so himself forward with with the knife because and he's at getting this closer. point he's he's what like drenched in gasoline chemicals in his eye stabbed and blood yeah he's yeah. got blood pouring out of him and he's pulling himself closer and closer and then this is the other thing that was set up at the very beginning and i kind of skimmed over in in doing this is like to defrost it she said she needed to unplug it and her husband just said you'll find out how to like you need to do that yourself you find the plug yourself honey uh, <laughs> as he's leaving uh and so she does it like we were told she doesn't know where the plug is. And so now she's like, she can't get the door closed and she's trying to find the plug. She's feeling the wall for the plug. And then he's pulling himself closer and closer. And then he gets close enough to like make a lunge at her as she pulls the cord out of the wall. And then the screen goes black and we cut to police cars racing to the apartment. Uh, and And Gloria are in the police cars and they, they, they go and the door is still chained shut. Like he tied a chain between the door uh, handle and, and the banister that was next to it. And the police have to actually like, break down the door and then they get in and it's pitch black. They can't see anything. And they, they got their flashlights bobbing everywhere, but they can't tell there's a body at the bottom of the stairs. Sam finds the light bulb and he, he, he gets it into uh, the lighting fixture and they look around and they see the, the, the refrigerator door is kind of like shaking and Susie is alive huddled behind the refrigerator door. Uh, um, Rhodes body is down on the ground in front of her and the police try to go to them. But Sam stops them because you see Susie needs to step over the dead body of her would be rapist and murderer to prove that she could be an independent <laughs> woman. Gosh. and because gloria is an actual human being with a soul she runs to Susie and gives her a hug uh, but, <laughs> but eventually some, some words for get Sam. wow oh, I, I, I <laughs> after this uh, she does get to sam and they hug and that is the end okay well done thank you I hope I gave even like a tenth of the tension of watching these final act, the final act of this film in that, in that verbal rundown for a podcast. Um, have either of you ever seen it as a play? I never have. I have not. I have I have. And it, it really just, as far as I can remember, it's, it's a one set play. It's just right. the apartment front. Um, and so I, I'm trying to remember how they cover things like, um, I mean, obviously, like driving over the body can't happen and, it, and the airport can't happen. Um, but it works great because they're just in a theater and they just turn out all the lights. Uh. And so you're just in a dark theater and you maybe get like these flashes uh-huh. of, you know, something. And then the, like the refrigerator and stuff like that. But some things don't work as well, like the shadow, because that needs like filmmaking framing to work just oh, right. for the, the leap across the stage. Yeah. And so you you miss out on some things like that. And I bet also, like, um, I mean, 
the last position we see wrote in, in the film is like lying on his back with the knife in his, in his gut. If that's how it gets staged in the play, like he can't leap from that position. <laughs> like you're <laughs> going to spot him moving a little to get ready for the leap. So I, it's gotta be pretty tricky to do that. What for filmmaking? You just cut and it's a wide shot. And then he comes and, flying. Well, part of me thinks that screen. I think maybe in the, in the play, like he gets stabbed near the fridge and then she's trying to get out. And then the fridge opens. And that's when she realizes that she's lost her advantage or something like oh, they, that. They, 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 they abbreviate it or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the film, they were able to extend it one more and, and ramp it up again and again and again. Um, um, but it, it, so works, it, it works for, well as a play. Do they do the flame? Like, does he play with matches in? I think play? so. Cause my... I, I, I'm pretty sure um, that they do, or, or it's like a, like a, an electric match. So it just mimics, uh-huh. you know, a match. Um, but it, it, like, it, it, if you get the chance to see it as a play, I would, it's love, still to, a good I would play. love to see it as a play. Um, I wanted to say a couple of things about the, um, I guess these are kind of trivia things. So there's a warning. Did you see the warning that they, that they would show um, during this in the, in the theaters? Did you guys see this? No. I, so mm-mm. there's a uh. little, like a little trailer before and you see her, you know, Audrey Hepburn scared and, uh, Alan Arkin's got the the plastic gloves on and the, the sunglasses and stuff. And then it says, wait, uh, oh, it says, um, during the last eight minutes of this picture, the theater will be darkened to the legal limit to heighten the terror of, of the oh breathtaking climax, which takes place in nearly total darkness on the screen. If there are sections where smoking is permitted, those patrons are respectfully requested not to jar the effect by lighting up during the sequence. And of course, no one will be seated at this time. Is that amazing? So I, I mean, love, it's kind I love of the concept it, it dark of, into the legal limit. Um, it reminds me of when I watched uh, A Quiet Place, and this was at my brother's house, and he has like a little home theater room. But we were upstairs, and we, we started it, and I had a bag of M&Ms with me, and in like the first three minutes, I ate an M&M, and then I thought mm, that was too much. I can't, <laughs> <laughs> I can't chew an M&M during this movie during A Quiet Place because sound is so key, and I think. The visuals and the light is the same thing for Wade Until Dark. Yeah, and I was just looking at Wikipedia, and it says, to immerse viewers in the suspense of the climactic scene, movie theater owners dim their lights to the legal limits and then turn them off one by one until the audiences were in complete darkness. <laughs> oh, <laughs> which man. is uh, kind of amazing. Which is, it, so um, I've seen this one, in, I've, I've seen the play in the theater, but I the first time I saw the movie... I was in um, junior high. It was at Lake Ridge. It was like this. It was the Halloween movie in like eighth grade English class. We got a vote <laughs> or something. And so I got the experience of this with like 20 other people near me. And you get like that intensity when he jumps and there's the big shadow and everything. And like imagine everybody having the jump that your wife had, Todd. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, imagine like like 20 junior high kids. <laughs> having that experience and so have you guys watched this in like a big group because i imagine in a movie theater especially with people who had never seen this it would be like electrifying just like the energy in those last few minutes and everybody Mm -hmm. being ramped up in that tension because i've heard that's what it was like for the quiet absolutely that was my experience with quiet place i i didn't even want to shift my weight because i was afraid of yes you know, my, my leather chair squeaking or something. I I just, it, 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 it's captivating. It really is. uh, It's, it's pretty amazing. 
So I suspect that's what the the dark minutes in this would be oh, like yeah. in a movie theater, especially with people mm-hmm. that haven't seen it. Just like the intensity. And I wonder how much of I this film is in complete darkness. Um, I bet it's 30 seconds. Oh, yeah. It, it is not very long that those um, frames would when, when she uh, breaks the lights, like when she actually turns out the last light bulb. It's not very long before he lights a match. Um, mm-hmm. After she throws the gasoline on him, it's really not very long before he opens the refrigerator door. Uh, that's probably the longest one is that is that run right there. Um, but I remember seeing it I, I, that first time. I'm pretty sure Todd, it was in our friend Arlie's basement. So there would have been very little oh, yeah. light <laughs> um, <laughs> in those moments uh, when uh, when it went completely black. And I think this is one that the like if this is your first time seeing it, the viewing space matters like you should try and control uh for light (laughs) like this is shouldn't be one that you watch in the middle of the day with light streaming through your windows um for the the full experience that the film was meant to evoke in the viewer now obviously you can and i think you'd still enjoy it and you'd still get the jump scares but i don't think the sensations would be what the filmmakers are achieving through their manipulation of our senses. Yeah. I know filmmakers sometimes are like very precious about, you know, my, my film should never be watched on an iPhone or something like that. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? It doesn't matter. But with this one, I really (laughs) think if you can like go to the library, just get the DVD, um, you know, wait until wait until dark and then (laughs) turn off all the lights and snuggle up next to somebody you love and watch this movie and you will never forget the experience. It's really, it's just, it's amazing. So, and it also has jump scare moments where if you want someone to hate you, you can play into those and grab them when he goes flying oh, across the room, yeah. like grab their leg. Yeah. I remember uh, doing that to one of my brothers the first time they watched Sixth Sense and the little girl reaches out from under the bed. Oh, to this girl yeah. and grabs. I did that to someone. And then I also remember our friend Brad, when we were watching the ring the first time in a college group, there's, I think phone calls. I can't remember. It's been so long. But phone calls were really key, and he started calling people's cell phones at the exact same moment it was about to happen in the movie. <laughs> uh, and this certainly has moments that can play into that. In fact, uh, just uh, like an hour before recording, I'd put up on our Facebook page, like, "Hey, uh, we're recording about this movie tonight. Do any of you have thoughts?" And the first comment was from listener Tessa. And um, she mentions the first time I saw this, I was so startled by the guy getting run over by the car that I inhaled all the air in the room with my cat. <laughs> I'm like the guy getting run over by the car, the guy flying through the shadows. And um, those are just like such like shock yeah. moments um, where so much of this is tension, tension, tension. And those mm-hmm. are like high scare. It's, it's not it's not the tension being built anymore. It's just like, oh, what in the world <laughs> just happened? Yeah. Um, and, and so yeah. I, I completely remember that first moment of the car getting run over. Like, what is going on? <laughs> the, the first yeah, time it, I saw it, it. It almost feels like it's jarringly out of place in the movie because there's never anything else like that. And they don't make cuts like that because like 98% of the movie is just yeah. that apartment. It's it's practically a three camera sitcom. Yeah, they do. do they do yeah, interesting and, things with the with the tension and building the tension. Um it's 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 like um in science there's a term called punctuated e- equilibrium do you know this term uh i'm not familiar. so when when not uh really. when they talk about evolution there's kind of two theories of evolution one is that evolution is this long slow march towards you know what we are today so the dinosaurs turn into birds and then the birds turn into this thing and then it just slowly over time um this this happens and punctuated equilibrium is where things are basically 
Um, so life on the planet is basically pretty stable. And then there's something that happens that sort of pushes evolution forward in, uh, in a very rapid way uh, over, a, mm-hmm. you know, over a short period of time. And so you have equilibrium that's punctuated by this uh, escalation. And um, I kind of feel like we get that in this film where you, know, you see the, the drugs at the beginning and the doll – and then things get, you know, the, the guys come to the house and they're kind of trying to figure it out. And then when he opens that closet door and you see that woman hanging from the inside of the door, like all of a sudden, you know, the temperature rises significantly. Right? Yeah, that's that's a big. It's spike. not a huge, but and it's not when, a huge when... scary jump cut. It's not it's not what it is at the end, but it definitely mm-hmm. like it pushes it up. And then you're at that level for a while until. Well, and then and then she puts on the scarf uh-huh. and is like in such close proximity oh, wow. to the body, and you're just like, oh my gosh. Yep. And then when the phone, all the stuff, and I do want to say just real quick, Audrey Hepburn does an amazing performance oh, yeah. as the blind woman. She's good. In this. Oh, she like she she. I mean, the Academy Award. She sells it <laughs> <You> completely. <know. laughs> but um, uh-huh. like the stuff with the phone calls, and when she when she starts kind of figuring it out. And she sends Susie upstairs and says, okay, I want you to look outside. Or Gloria yeah, she sends upstairs. Gloria upstairs and she says, I want you to look outside. And if you see somebody make a call from that, uh, from that phone booth, then I want you to call my phone and let it ring twice and then hang up. And, um, and so Susie calls who she thinks is Mike. Is it when she calls Mike? And then uh, Mike answers. Oh, okay. She calls Mike and says, I have the doll. Come and come and get the doll. And then uh, and then Mike comes and then and then the phone rings twice. Yeah, the phone rings twice. And so she knows not to trust Mike. I can't remember how like the order of it. I think I think that's but it happens it twice. Like, it happens twice. So there's one time where it rings twice and she goes, Okay. I think it's when she realizes that Carlino is bad. She's like, okay, Carlino's bad. He's not a real cop. Not a real cop. And you're like, what? And it pushes the level up. And then you think that that's kind of it. And then, and then it happens again. She calls Mike. And then she, it happens and she's like, I can't and trust Now I Mike. can't trust anybody. And it's so good. Oh, man, it's so good. And somebody's in the house with her when that happens. One of the bad guys is in the house with her. And it just, the whole <laughs> thing, it, it just works so well. Building and building and building and building and building until this, uh, this you know, super famous uh, clim- clim- climax scene and i think that the one thing that works so well again for that climax is that um this is a filmmaker who's like using film in a way that we're not used to Mm -hmm. (laughs) like it's it's playing with us uh you know with the sight it's playing with with our vision with the darkness in the same way um a quiet place plays with our our hearing Right. right that you know it's um it's using these tools that are there for every single film but it's in a way that we're not used to engaging with it um as a way of introducing tension into the story. And I think he does a really good job. Yep. I have a question about Susie's character. Good. Why is she withholding the doll from them? Well, first she's, she's not, she she literally they, they just don't it. know. Yeah. She's with Mike tearing the like, house apart, uh, trying to find it. But, uh, but then Mike convinces her so with all of these theatrics of what these guys are doing, they convince her that Sam is in trouble and um, and that they need to get the doll 
in order to prove that Mike or either in, in order to prove that he's innocent or like to hide the doll so that he doesn't get in trouble. And I think it's kind Mm -hmm. of ambiguous in kind of the middle section of this, what she's actually going to do with the doll when she finds it. Um, But it's when she realizes that she's dealing with the bad guys, then she's, then she decides she's not going to give them the doll because they're bad and she's not going to give bad Mm -hmm. men what they want. Um, And this is one of those things about the film that until you write the summary, like I'd, I'd never really thought through all of this. <laughs> like, yeah. You just know that, that it, it's adversarial. Like she, yeah. she is opposed to them. They are opposed to her. They want something. She doesn't want to give it. Yeah. To initially. Exactly. There's a MacGuffin, and we don't want, and we don't want the bad guys to get it. Yeah. 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 I would say and that when you're like, in some ways it's almost the extent when you realize like the lengths that she's going to is like, okay, there's, there's just a doll with some drugs in it. And she doesn't even know that. Yeah. She doesn't know it has drugs in it. Um, but in some ways it's almost surprising when you find out this wasn't a Hitchcock film because so much of it feels oh, yeah. absolutely like, uh, I, I, like I looked it up. I was like, is this a Hitchcock one? Yeah, it certainly feels like, um, it. If, if, like the, the, the doll could be anything. It's just a MacGuffin. Like it really doesn't matter to her life or Sam's life at all. It's mm-hmm. just the mm-hmm. thing the bad guys are after and she is going to be our good guy. And and so that is like the purest Hitchcocky and like, I, it doesn't matter what it is. There's just something people want. Um, and then you guys said like, this is almost all in one, one setting. Uh, and also the way like she almost brushes the dead body. It really reminds me of the Hitchcock film rope, which is all in one room. Um, and there's a dead body that you're just waiting as an audience for the dead body to be discovered. <laughs> and like, there's moments of tension where it's like, is someone going to lift the lid? and discover the where the dead body's in a chest. Like there's a maid that's clearing a table and underneath the stuff that she's clearing is the lid and you just are waiting for her to lift it <laughs> um, the whole time. And that's, you know, the tension is about us having this bit of information and waiting for the discovery to happen. Um, and in this one, I think it's not the same as waiting for the dead body, but like so much of it is the tension of like, we know more than she does and we're rooting for her and we just want her to put the puzzle together. Yeah, the 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 mise en scène, like the the way that the that the scenes are set up, and the guys and the way that they that they are standing in the room, and it's just so obvious, and you you can see that she cannot see this thing. You just want to scream, like Hmm. there's a guy right there next to you, and uh, it's 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 amazing. Um, So. You had you had mentioned I, just but, real quick on the mise en scène. I wanted to say something, Todd. The um, we mentioned in the summary. I said like Mike's there, but Carlino and Rote are behind him. Uh, like we, if you vision that in her head, she's in the lower right corner, and there's these three men looming oh, yeah. in the upper left corner. Yeah. is how it gets framed. It's so good. And uh, like in in terms of like screen theory, and again, what's called mise en scène, like the lower right corner of the screen is the weakest, and you feel trapped. A character feels trapped to the audience, even if we don't know why. Mm-hmm a character is going to feel trapped when they're down on the lower right corner. And again, we have these three looming criminals just literally above her. <laughs> um, and, and, and that's uh, the upper left corners where we give all the momentum because we read left to right and top to bottom. And it's just the threat could come at any moment and, and attack her um, is, is the way it's said. And like nothing happens in that actual scene. It's just, we feel this kind of pervasive dread for her yeah. um, because of how it's being staged. So you had some words about Sam and <laughs> he's he's tough on her he is tough on her and he expects her to do you know a lot of stuff by herself and he's always encouraged she's going to blind school and he's encouraging her to 
be super independent. I don't know if encouraging is the word. You don't think so? (laughs) He's demanding, demanding independence. So, uh, yeah, so uh, you guys see him as clearly a bad husband. Is that what you're saying? No, well, okay. Just I think rough up at the through, best. Uh, it's the final thing that really bugs me, and I think that taints my vision of everything that came before. Uh-huh. So I think when we first see him and he's like encouraging her, uh, but at the same time that he's encouraging her, he's like, "You really got to use Gloria. Like, you can't go to the store by yourself, but you better be completely independent. But you got to use Gloria <laughs> to go to the store." So there, like, there, I, I think there's a little inconsistency that kind of rubs me the wrong way um, in that. Uh, but like when she drops the thing and he's like, no, you can find it. And she asks for a hint and, he's, and he says, just keep looking. And then when she really struggles, he yeah. does give her the hint. And I think like that moment okay. for me works, but I think I get turned off because the end is just, it's like she is in a room with dead bodies all around her. She's just fought for her life. And you're like, come to me, honey. <laughs> like, like step over the body of your would-be rapist and murderer because I need to see that you're independent. If I come to you, I'm coddling you. It's like, no, she's traumatized. That's, that's, that's not the moment. Her. It's okay to coddle yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think my frustration with him is more from that last moment. Like, I, I am a little more on edge with how he treats her in the opening act. Mm-hmm. Um, I will totally grant you well, the the frustration with the end. It seems pretty harsh. But but there's another part of me that wonders if he wasn't as um, I don't know. I would say encouraging. You might say rough at best <laughs> with her in in really pushing her to become more independent. Is there any way she survives this situation with these guys? And, and I would imagine that as a screenwriter, that when you're giving her the backstory that she's been blind for less than a year or about uh-huh. a year. That one reason they that those earlier scenes get included is to give you a sense that, yes, she's blind and this is a recent development, but she has been pushed to a level of competence that maybe you wouldn't expect. Uh, and so I bet that's why those earlier scenes were included. And again, I don't mind those earlier scenes in and of themselves. It's just when you get to the last scene, it, that last scene really okay. rubs me the wrong way um, in, in how he's treating her. And, and so I, and I, I am 100% sure they, they included that to show like how independent she is, but it just feels wrong for a loving husband, wife relationship <laughs> in that moment. Uh, and, and so I, I, again, like I'm just, I, everything about it just feels off, but I, I think you're right that we're, we're told that he's pushing her and encouraging her um, or demanding uh, a level of competence from her. That is how we can believe that um, she's able to do what she does. Cause what she does is pretty awesome. And it's not um, just like the, the final fight that is awesome. Like no, she it, is, it, she's been thinking this. Out together with, with clues, with um, oral clues where she's hearing stuff um, mm-hmm. like the, the step on the stairs and the squeak mm-hmm. of shoes are, are hints to her. Yeah. She, she knows that people are wearing the same shoes. She notices that they're fiddling um, with the blinds. She notices that they keep um, dusting everything. She's it's, mm-hmm, I, yeah. I, I'm impressed by her. Um, so my grandfather uh, was blind and um, I, it's, it's just astounding to spend time with a, uh, with a blind person that is, like really in their element. Um, it's just <laughs> like, we all were convinced that our grandpa was uh, like, had s- superpowers because of the things that he could do and the, 
these heightened senses that he had and the way that he was able to use um, sound and uh, and touch, especially. Um, so you could sit, we, I mean, we would, the, the thing that we would do is uh, sit on his lap and he would feel our ears and he could tell uh, all of his grandchildren apart by our ears. It was really awesome. <laughs> uh, Am I right in remembering that you told me a story about him? like being the first one down at Christmas and yelling up, Oh, I wish you could see all of these presents. Yes. Uh, Yeah. He would go and make sure that Santa Claus had come and he would say, Oh my gosh, I can't believe all these presents from Santa Claus. He would also go to all of um, my dad and his brothers were all athletes um, in high school and college. And he would go to all the games and he would yell at the refs and he would say, I could be a better ref than you. (laughs) Um, Yeah. He was a, he was a remarkable man. Um, and it's, but it, it's, it's amazing to see what, what people can do in, in the situation like that. Um, and he had the benefit of, uh, he went blind slowly over, uh, over a period of many years and he knew that he was going to go blind and he knew that it was irreversible. And so he taught himself how to be blind while he could still see. So when he became fully blind, he was like, like I said, I mean, he was superhuman. He he traveled all over the world. He um, he was a, an advocate for 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 blind people and was given awards at the highest levels for his service to to the blind. He was really really remarkable, and I think that's one of the reasons why we like this film so much in our family. And if you ask my dad, he would say, I think he would say it's one of his favorite films. Um, and it's I'm sure that it, that that has part of it uh, part, part to do with it. But um, but I like. I mean, I really love Susie, and I get what I get what you're saying, and I really don't like the way that Sam treats her at the very end of the film. Um, and there are kind of some uncomfortable scenes in the middle where he's really pushing her, then she gets upset and she cries and says, "Do you want me to be the world champion blind lady?" And he says, "Kind of, you know, <laughs> like I love you." And he's <laughs> and he's tender with her, and you know, gives her a hug and tells her that he loves her, but he's also um, insistent that she learned how to do these things. And it, it kind of gets into our conversation of uh, coaching when we talked about uh, Hoosiers and how, mm-hmm. uh, you know, everybody wants to think that you, you'll for sure get the best results if you're just kind and loving and gentle all the time. Um, but we also know that sometimes tough coaches get really good results. And it it becomes doubly complicated because he's her husband and not not mm-hmm. just her coach. It would be different if he was like her blind teacher uh, or her blind school teacher who was pushing her like this. But the fact that it's her husband, it's like, oh man, this is, it, to me, it, it puts it on um, like in an interesting situation because I think that it's important and I buy into what the film says, which is what you pointed out, Joe, that without that, and without this kind of rigorous, intensive training that she's doing, not not against her will, she's not forced into this, and she's excited about her uh, about her accomplishments and her achievements and things. But really, Sam is playing a big role in this, and he pushes her sometimes to a point where she kind of breaks, and and it's hard. But also, it's the thing that makes the whole film possible. So. You just want him to dial it back in the last scene. <laughs> yes. Like, okay, you, you're the tough, loving, but tough 
uh, you know, advocate for her and her ability to adjust to this new life that she's going to have in act one. But when you come into yes, the house with yes. multiple dead bodies, <laughs> and and I'm the, not going like, to argue that. I'm not going to argue with you down. on that point. At all. <laughs> um, do you think any of the setup for Sam's character is so that it's reasonable for her to doubt him? Like when they say, mm-hmm. you know, like here's the scenario. I think some of it is like if he, if he was, you know, like the all-star husband, um, then you'd be like, oh, well, she's not going to doubt that for nah, a second. I don't know. And so this like, I, I don't, I don't know that. I, I, I'm, well, also, I'm, I'm as... like, I'm, I'm exploring some of the ideas for, for Sam, yeah. because like when I think about this film um, and like, when I think about seeing it in junior high, I don't remember Sam. I see super competent blind woman with a lot of guts and determination to protect her turf. Yeah. You know, that's like what I think about. I don't think about like, oh, well, a man pushed her to be so strong. Yeah. You know, um, I, so I'm trying I to say like process all those. If, if that was part of it, I don't know that how omniscient the opening sequences are help. Like as an audience, we already know that he's being framed. So mm-hmm. we, we don't want her to fall for it. And we don't feel like she should. I think I'm wondering if there's a version of the story where literally we only see her point of view, which would be really hard to pull off. <laughs> um, but I think you could, it would, it, it would increase. I, I mean, not see her point of view. Sorry for that. But like, we only have the information she has, like what, what level of paranoia um, could be reached um, mm-hmm. with that? If, if you really were sowing those seeds of doubt about her husband and we get some of her story where she's only been married for a few months um, and, and that kind of stuff, it, it would, I think be different uh, than what we get. And I am quite happy with the one we have, but if, if what you're saying, Andrew, about like, are we supposed to doubt the husband? I think that is what we needed. Like we're just given too much information. As oh, an audience I, I don't really mean that like that. that we're supposed to doubt it, but that we're supposed to believe mm-hmm. that she might doubt it. I think that it's believable. Uh-huh. Uh, two thoughts one is i don't think that they give us so much information at the beginning that there that it becomes impossible for us to think that he's maybe involved in this in some way i think yeah, that because they, 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 like, they, they, they mute the conversation yes. so we don't know if he was meeting her and so having if you knew nothing about this film and you were going into it i think mm-hmm. that a reasonable person could at least harbor suspicion and say maybe there is something fishy going on with sam you know, I think you're right. I hadn't thought about it. Maybe I'm just like, yeah, I've that, seen that so doll might have been a handoff yeah. about that. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe they, pl- the, because of the way that they play it well at the beginning, you don't suspect it. But then later on, when, when the seeds are beginning to be planted, um, then I think there's, I think there's enough that a reasonable person could say, well, you know, maybe he is kind of shady. Um, okay. I, I accept that argument. But I do also think that regardless of him being tough on her about, about the blind stuff and the independent stuff, I think that there's enough, I think they do a good enough job of setting it up. I and mean, we laugh at how elaborate their scheme is, but it's also, they do a very good job of planting doubt in her mind and sowing confusion. And it, you just have to imagine going through that whole thing with your eyes completely closed, like in complete darkness, this old man rushes into your house and he's saying all this strange stuff and he pushes you aside and then he runs and he's rummaging around in your, in your dresser. And I mean that that, like the whole thing, I, my heart just breaks for her and how cruel they are, um, in, in the way that they're, that they're dealing with her even before the, you know, the, the famous scene in the dark and the, and the, and the knife and stuff. Um, it, the, mm-hmm. maybe 
it's just it's mean. just mean. It's so mean to prey on her like that. And Audrey Hepburn sells her character so well in that she is, I mean, we do see her towards the end. We see her tough and defending her turf, but there's also something of that kind of girlish innocence that, that is so much the thing that we love so much about Audrey Hepburn, I think from Roman holiday and through her films is that there is something of innocence um, in her and like, she's just too good for this world (laughs) in the, in the best possible way. Um, and and we see that in her, and then to see these these three just creepy, disgusting men uh, treating her in this way is really, um, it's one of the things that I think heightens the the tension is that you feel so angry. I mean, I feel so angry at those men for the way that they're treating her, and they never touch her. I mean, they, you know, it's all psychological, and it's. it's well, it's it's like the psychological effect of them taking advantage of her disadvantage, yes. like the fact that she's blind. And so all of that feels just disgusting, yeah. you know, like them taking advantage of her feels horrible. Um, and I, I mean, I don't want to say that it's as horrible as as like the rape implication that Joseph mentioned, but it feels horrible and it feels you know, they're taking advantage is the same kind of terminology that's used. And Mm -hmm. so it, it almost feels like it's rape metaphor over the course of the whole thing. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. I mean, it's, (laughs) it's, it's fun. I mean, it's fun to laugh about it and it's fun to be like, Oh man, this is just an amazing film. It's, it's, it's well edited. It's well acted. It's well written, except for the character of Sam, maybe, uh, especially at the end. <laughs> just at the end. Just at the end. I, I accept all the act one stuff you said, Todd. But a- Alan Arkin is terrifying in this film. I mean, he is. Oh, the, like the sunglasses and his mannerisms and the gloves. Yeah, and to hear him talk about it. So I watched the little um, the little documentary at, at the end of the – on the DVD. And he talks about his role in the film and he says, you know, um, that this guy is so drug-addled that he's um he what how did he describe it he used the best description was something like he's in this bored rage all the time like he he seems kind of even keel but he's right on the edge of just complete mania and and you see it kind of come out uh, initially in in the very early scene when he when he pulls out his knife he's like a snake ready to strike um, but he just, he's, he plays that whole thing so well, the, the accent that he just has weird mannerisms and ways of speaking. And, um, yeah, it almost feels a little, um, Christopher Walken, the way he talks. A little bit. Yeah. Hmm. Like where it's just like the cadence is, feels different enough that you're kind of on edge, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think. And listening to him. Yeah. He sells that well. And I think the other guys do a great job. Like they are three bad guys. But they're also three different bad guys that are bad in different ways, and and they they each develop. I think their their roles really well. And Mike being this kind of like a gentleman thief, who in the end you can tell that he's he's kind of feeling bad about the way that they're taking advantage of her, and when he's being really rough with her, like you know we need the doll, 
you get the sense that he wants her to give them the doll so that they can leave and leave her alone. Um, but now that he's in it, he has to get the doll. He's not going to walk away from this. Carlino's a little bit more, um, I don't want to thuggish. Well, I was going to say bumbling. Well, it seems like he's a dirty cop, right? A cop that went bad. And, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's even mentioned in the lines. Like you, you play a sergeant whenever you do your little cons and you have experience. Like, oh, that's interesting because um, I, I read that differently. I read that as um, that he had been in the army and that he was a sergeant. Oh, see, I read it as cop. Because he gets really, mm. he's really sensitive about it. He says, I'm not, you know, stop calling me sergeant. Like he's ashamed of it. See, I, I, and I read it as ashamed because he was a cop. Ah, okay, um, okay. Um, but but he, had, uh, he has a more air of corruption to him. Yeah, well, and also um, like a, a selfishness, right? Like he, he's really concerned about getting caught. He's really concerned about the mm-hmm. fingerprints. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think there's a, a a different kind of selfishness to him. But than he the also, other yeah, like he and Mike are definitely not interchangeable. Oh no, but he's the one. You know, when they, they walk in, yeah. when they walk into the apartment for the first time, and Lisa's written this note that says, "Make yourselves at home," and he like goes to the fridge and he gets a huge plate of meat and cheese. <laughs> he puts so much meat. <laughs> he and makes cheese. this huge sandwich of meat and cheese for himself and. Um, you know, he just seems a little bit more like, uh, I don't know. Bumbling is the word that comes to mind. Like if, if Mike is sort of straight man and Carlino's maybe funny man or something. Um, Mm -hmm. and then Mm -hmm. you just get like pure evil in rote. Yes. So I I think that's a good, like a, a good bit of writing to, to make them all really bad and willing to do really bad things. But kind of in different ways, maybe for different reasons um, and with different degrees of badness. And it like, it seems immediately apparent when Mike and Carlino see him, they're like, Oh, this is a bad guy. (laughs) They're like, well, I mean, we're bad guys, but this is a bad guy. What is, I think Carlino says trouble. (laughs) Like they, they know. Um, But I mean, for all of that, this is, this is Audrey Hepburn's film. She just, she does, mm-hmm. she does, um, you know, like happy, uh, newlywed wife. I think she plays that well. She plays scared really well and she plays tough really well. Determined. Mm-hmm. Determined. Well, even like, um, that scene of her and, uh, Gloria, when they have the fight and Gloria, like throw stuff down and like, like Audrey Hepburn after she says like, oh, you didn't throw anything that was breakable. And Ed Gloria says, I learned that from my dad. He never threw breakables. <laughs> um, um, like, I think that's a really good character moment yes. for both of them. Um, and mm. it's played really well by both the uh, the young actress who's playing Gloria and by Audrey Hepburn. Um, I think there's a lot of layers in uh, the kind of um, bubbling frustration <laughs> that both of these characters uh, experience as part of their mm-hmm. daily lives. Yeah. Well, and then I think the other thing she plays is smart. Like once she turns it on and she's like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to think through this. It becomes clear. It's like, oh, she is the smartest person in this Mm -hmm. movie. Yeah. It's great to see her um, changing roles, you know, from being the, the hunted to the hunter sort of, I mean, she doesn't become Mm -hmm. like really truly a hunter, but I, I love it. Um, I'm going to give myself the advantage as much as yeah, I can. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a Louis Lamour thing. Um, he does this so well where 
the hero is, uh, you know, he'll get ambushed and he's shot and he he's in the desert and the bad guys are all chasing him and he's running and he's he's going to run out of water and he's, you know, maybe he's injured. He got shot in the arm or the leg or something. And it looks like he's on the ropes and he's about to die. And then he's like, you know what? If I'm going to die, I'm going to go down swinging. And then he turns and he decides I'm going to go get these guys. And it's like. Okay, this is my favorite part of this book, <laughs> and uh, and there's a, a moment like that for her where she's she just decides like I'm in this, and these guys are gonna kill me unless I do something, and so I'm gonna do this plan. And it's not like the most elaborate plan ever. She just decides to break all the light switches and then or all the light bulbs, and then fill the one vase with water, which conveniently you know he's there looking at her when she needs it. But um, but it's still it's just great. Uh, just a couple of comments uh, from readers. Uh, like I said, I thrown out that Facebook post just before recording, but listener Amanda said the first time my husband saw uh, this movie, we were living in one of those strange old homes where our bathroom was upstairs uh, and we slept downstairs. We didn't own a TV. So we watched on a laptop one night after the movie ended. He said, well, I have to go to the bathroom and you're coming with me. (laughs) And uh, listener Lena says, uh, we saw the play a couple weeks ago, and I've never seen the movie, but it's high on my list now. So uh, we had talked about the play version of this, and uh, still still gets produced this time of year, it seems. Yeah, it's, um, Joseph, there's there's the big new theater up north from us. It's it's mm-hmm. going on there um, for I like the next two months. The Hale Center Theater. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it, and it's like the big new Hale Center oh, Theater, cool. and they're doing it right now. And I wish that we could go see it i'm certain that they mu- they must have done this at the small th- the the small hail theater in orem oh that's where i saw it oh, okay. the one in Provo. oh uh i haven't been to the one in Provo. Or, one sorry in the, oh i was thinking i'm sorry i'm thinking the covey center but i'm sure i'm sure the one in in orem's done it too no i'm talking about the little theater in the round yeah i know yeah, what you that mean. would be a great yeah place i'm, I'm sure it's done it i mean this uh this 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 play they they must have yeah so I, I just have one last thing in thinking about um, disclaimers and warnings and things about films. Um, my other favorite one is from the film Witness for the Prosecution. Uh, have you guys seen Witness for the Prosecution? Okay, nope. well, I'm not no. going to say anything because at the end of the film, as the credits roll, there's a voiceover that says, the management of this theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you will not divulge to anyone the secret of the ending of Witness for the Prosecution. <laughs> like an early uh, spoiler yeah. warning. It's like, don't spoil it for your friends, guys. Come it's on. So awesome. It's a 1957 uh, film noir. So Witness for the Prosecution. If you like, uh, if you like movies with twist, twist endings, that's a good one. One that was so good that they made a disclaimer that said, please don't ruin this because it's really good. So I won't ruin it for you. Also, because I can't remember how it ends. (laughs) (laughs) You can go watch it right now and enjoy the twist again. Yeah, well, that's kind of par for the course for me. I have a terrible memory for uh, for plot. (laughs) I just can never remember uh, the way stories end. All right. I think that's going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all of the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We would like to thank Nick English, who designed our logo, and Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. 
All right. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out episode number 138 when we talked about the big sleep or our Halloween episodes, which would be number 44 when we built Mount Rushmore's of Fear, episode number 98 when we did Halloween elevator pitches, episode number 138 when we did Halloween workshops. We've done a lot of different kind of Halloween specials, guys. Um, You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Diz Minute. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners, and we would love for your feedback anytime you want to give it. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. If you enjoyed this episode, oh. yeah. dang it! Nice. <laughs> um, we did it for the first one, but not this one. Um, 